Shipwreck Tales with John McChrystal. This week, the Sydney Cove. Sydney, spelt the same way as Sydney City in Australia. And this is an Australian affair. It has so many aspects to it, and none of them particularly pretty, and a lot of deprivation. On foot, on ship, kind of early on too. 1797, John McChrystal. Yeah, it's Australia's eighth oldest shipwreck, given that most of the rest of them were Dutch vessels that had ploughed into the west coast of Australia. This is the first on the east coast. So by now, people had become a little bit aware of what lay to the east of Australia, and in fact that Australia was separate from New Zealand. Captain James Cook had set that one to rest, but not that long before, only really around the 1770s. This is very, very early on in the history of Straya. should just describe the ship so people have an idea of the floaty thing that they were on. She was built in Calcutta. She was a British East Indiaman. So she was built purposefully to ply the trade either between India and Great Britain or between India and the various satellite trading posts that there were. Given she was a British East Indiaman, she's likely to have been around 300 to 400 tonnes. She's going to be roughly 50 metres in length. Because she's described as a ship, she has three masts. She's made of wood, as usual. She looks pretty much like any other vessel that's bobbing around in the merchant marine in those days. She was launched as the Begum Shore, was her original name, and she did plenty of runs in the local area, and notably to China. But then for this particular voyage, she had been sold to a British trading firm by the name of Campbell Clark & Company, who were big wheels in Calcutta, It was decided that since this new colony had been set up at Port Jackson on the east coast of Australia in 1788, it's a penal colony, that they would embark on a speculative voyage there. They'd take a whole lot of stuff there and try to sell it. What you want to do when you've got a bunch of people living on the edge of the known world is take what they most want in the world, which apart from useful stuff like forks and plates and drinking vessels and things like that, is spirits. So mostly her cargo consisted of a hell of a lot of rum in barrels. 1796, she embarked from Calcutta. Gosh, this is very early on for a trading mission, isn't it? And no one had really done it before. There may have been vessels going out quite regularly from England at this stage, but in terms of intercolonial trade, this was one of the very early ones. In terms of India to Australia, these guys were pretty much breaking new ground. The captain was Guy Hamilton. He wasn't a spring chicken, was he? Nope. He'd seen a bit of the sea. He'd gone to sea when he was around 14 or 15. He was now 70. So he'd spent a whole lifetime at sea. Lots of people in his position would have hung up their sea boots long before, but for whatever reason, he was still out there and having a go. He was born in Clyde in Scotland, and they breed them pretty tough there, of course. His crew were mostly Lascars, people dark of complexion from that part of the world, namely India, Southeast Asia, and even North Africa. Mostly they were foreign to the officers, who were all British. The voyage itself wasn't uneventful as well, despite all the depravity that goes on later on. It was a pretty tough voyage, really. They probably expected it to be, because they were going to experience pretty much everything. They were going from north of the equator, from Calcutta, across the equator, deep down to the very bottom, really, of the Indian Ocean, as far down as you dared to go before you started getting into iceberg country. 
and then you'd turn left and head before the belt of westerlies down in the Southern Ocean, of which we've said so much. The hope there was to skirt the bottom of Australia, which was not that well known, and there was known to be this jutty outbit known as Van Diemen's Land, which Abel Tasman had described 100 years or so before. Some of the east coast of that had been filled in by Captain Cook's lieutenant commander, Tobias Furneaux, on the second voyage in 1773. The big mistake he made, of course, is that he showed there to be a great big deep bay where what we now know as Bass Strait is. Either way, at that stage, the south coast of Australia was little known and it was pretty much presumed that you had to go south of Tasmania. So you had to go well south to be safe. Because no one knew if they were joined it up. No, and in fact, everyone seemed to presume that they were at that point. The trouble that they encountered on the voyage to where they were wrecked? Went wrong pretty early on. They left on the 10th of November, 1796. They'd been at sea about a month. They'd just crossed the equator, and they hit a severe gale, and the ship sprung a leak, which wooden ships weren't unknown to do, really. And there was a fairly well-rehearsed set of countermeasures you could take when your floaty thing became a leaky floaty thing. They did what is known as fothering, which is where you drape a sail over the front of the vessel or over the affected part of the vessel. And it's full of holes which in turn have been threaded with bits of cut-up rope, which is known as oakum. The rope is made of hemp and it absorbs water and it swells. So you dump this thing over, you tighten it as hard as you can over the hole, and then once it's in position, the oakum swells and it becomes pretty much watertight. That's what they did, and it didn't work. They continued to leak, although not at too severe a rate at this stage, but it necessitated the pumps to be in full-time operation. So you're not only sailing your ship, you're also trying to pump the water out of it at this point as well, which must be a pretty horrible feeling when you're in the middle of the ocean with a long way to go. And it would be exhausting as well. Absolutely exhausting, because these pumps, of course, are operated by hand, and they're great big clunky inefficient bits of machinery, leather gaskets and operated with chains and that kind of thing. They'd be pretty hideous to have to spend a four-hour watch operating, I would think. The crew would be feeling it. On the 25th of January, while they were battling this leak, they struck another storm and their second officer was lost from the mast overboard. And of course, in a storm, there's nothing you can do. So the storm didn't help matters. Working a ship that's hard-pressed by the weather is more difficult than operating her in calm weather. Mm. Let's not forget that it's getting a lot colder as they get south and most of the crewmen are accustomed to much warmer climes. They lost two of them in the early part of 1797, to a combination of exhaustion, cold, and just general overwork, I would think. This wouldn't be completely unexpected and out of the ordinary. The leak is worrying, but people are lost frequently as an expected consequence of a large voyage, aren't they? It's par for the course, really. You can pretty much expect on an intercontinental voyage in those days to lose a few chaps somewhere along the line. Of course, it's regarded as a bad omen. Any ship that loses one of her crew is regarded as a slightly unlucky ship. And let's not forget, they had changed this vessel's name. And that's something that we've run into over and over again. It is. It's one of those recurring themes, really. It's an old maritime superstition, and who knows? There seems to be a correlation. Mm. It began as the Begum Shore. It's now the Sydney Cove. She's in trouble taking on water more then can be bailed out. We'll take a break and come back and John McChrystal will describe how she's wrecked and then the tribulation really begins. 
life, the universe, and everything in between. Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. This week's shipwreck tale, the Sydney Cove. Early in the colonial period of Australia, when it was a penal colony, 1797, she's sailing around the bottom of what we know as Tasmania, then as Van Diemen's Land, because nobody had realised for certain that it wasn't joined it up with Australia. She's taking on a lot of water and is in trouble, has already lost some men to exhaustion and man overboard in a storm as well. However, That isn't unique by any means in this era of travel by sea. But what happens next certainly goes down in the annals of an amazing survival story, but not without loss. John? They've been dogged with bad weather, really, in the Southern Ocean. They've skirted along the south coast of Australia, standing well clear in order to clear the southernmost tip of Van Diemen's Land, present-day Tasmania, and they get hit by another storm. They know where they are, which is one thing in their favour. It's the first time they've managed to get any kind of sight in order to reckon their position, and they place themselves in the vicinity of Tasmania. But another storm comes in, which in the ship's log is described as a perfect hurricane. Bass Strait is notorious for this kind of weather, of course. It plays havoc with the Sydney Hobart yacht race most years, and the Southern Ocean is just stalked by these enormous weather systems all the time. So no dramatic surprise to anyone that they get hit by bad weather again. The trouble is they were already leaky and now in the middle of the storm they spring a second leak. They seem not to be taking any further water from the first one and they can't locate where the second one has sprung up. But they're taking water on faster than they can get rid of it. They take the decision to begin jettisoning what they can of the cargo. They're armed, they've got a few cannon and quite a lot of shot aboard, that goes over. Anything that might be spoiled, there's plenty of that. You also calculated that you'd lose at least some of your cargo to leaks and water damage somewhere along the line. That all goes over the side as well. Everything that they didn't absolutely need and couldn't reasonably hope to sell, they were getting rid of in order to try to lighten the vessel. But on the 8th of February, this effort became futile. The captain, Guy Hamilton, decided that the only way of saving his crew and any proportion of his cargo was to beach the vessel. He had a chart, which is a chart relying on James Cook's survey of the area from his third voyage of this rough vicinity. And what it showed is the coastline of Tasmania and then lying off it to the northeast, a bunch of islands, which Cook had named after Furneaux. So the Furneaux Islands. There's around 52 of these. He aimed for one that is known these days as Cape Barron. Cook had supposed it was a cape of the larger mainland. In fact, it's an island. He aimed for Cape Barron, but his waterlogged ship, she's nearly half full of water at this stage. If you looked down through the main hatch of the vessel, you could see the deck below and the hatches in that as well to give access to the lower holds. The water was actually awash on that lower deck. She was half full of water and just not handling the sea too well anymore, as you would expect. He did what he could. He drove it in as close to land as he could, and having absolutely no control over this vessel in the end, they aimed her for a very small island, which still carries the name they gave it, Preservation Island. That's pretty evocative of what it offered them. It saved their bacon. They drove it onto the sandy bottom in a small cove on the 9th of February, 1797, and stumbled gratefully ashore onto Preservation Island. And what do you do then? This is not yet a shipping lane of any sort, is it? Because they were one of the first. 
Yeah, they were one of the first, and if they didn't come back or there were no news of their arrival slowly filtering back to Calcutta, you couldn't expect other people to be exactly dashing to follow in your footsteps. There were vessels that were likely to be coming up from the Southern Ocean to Port Jackson from Great Britain. There would be prison ships and there would be their supply vessels. But no, this is not a much frequented shore by any means. And they'd have to spot you. They would have to spot you, yes. They'd have to be looking for you to start with because no one's going to go too close to this bit of shoreline. They're going to stand as well clear of the land as they can at either end of what has been a very long voyage. You don't want to stuff it up at that point. The thought would be, let's set up a camp and have a bit of a think. And that's exactly what they did. They surveyed their island and discovered that it had water, but it was poor water. It was brackish and not very wholesome, and they were pretty sick, although no one died from that cause. After a few days when the weather abated, they also managed to use one of the ship's boats, they had two of those, to explore Cape Barron, where they found better water. And people may have seen these. They're a large, grey, goose-like animal called the Cape Barron goose. There are a few of those running around as well. There were pygmy wallabies there as well, and lots and lots and lots of seabirds. So there was food in abundance. There was water, whether on their island or Cape Barron Island, they had water. And they managed to find some bracken on Cape Barron as well, which provided them with their only source of vegetables of any sort. Put it this way, they could subsist there if they had to, and clearly at this point, they have to. They managed to cobble together shelter and they've got food. So imminent danger has passed. However, it wouldn't be a comfortable stay by any means. But they do have a fair amount of stuff still on the ship, or is she just too full of water to salvage anything that might have been in the hold? Well, she's sunk. She's not quite half above the water. Parts of her are still protruding above the water. And there is hope that if they can be rescued in timely fashion and the right equipment can be brought down, they may even be able to refloat her and make the necessary repairs and salvage not only the cargo but also the ship. But in the meantime, because this place does seem to be frequented with storms, Hamilton decides that he'll do his damnedest to get what he can of the cargo off. So they actually mount diving operations on this with no equipment. The book I've read, which is called The Wreck of the Sydney Cove, claims that what they made was a kind of underwater breathing apparatus consisting of a barrel with a breathing tube off it. So you had a limited supply of air. You could breathe in from the barrel and then breathe your exhaust air out into the water. And this would give you a bit more air and a bit more bottom time than you'd have if you were just freediving. I don't know whether this is true or not, but they did manage to salvage a substantial part of the cargo of rum. This is a mixed blessing, really, when you've got your rough and despairing crew on shore and you're trying to maintain discipline. It's all very well having your valuable cargo, but it presents one of the greatest threats to your safety that you could possibly imagine, really. Hamilton very wisely orders the rum to be stationed on another one of the small islets in the Furno Group, which is even today known as Rum Island. Lovely to know that history, should anyone be visiting. Preservation Island, Rum Island, and one can have yourself a little imagine. And Cape Barron is pretty evocatively named too, I think. There must have come a point when they thought, let's rescue ourselves, because that's what they endeavoured to do. There would have been quite a bit of debate. Do we wait and just hope that sooner or later we're going to spot a ship, or do we self-rescue? Because food was not abundant, and it wasn't limitless, I think the very sensible decision was made that the group should be divided and the strongest of them should be sent to the mainland, along the coast of the mainland, to Port Jackson to try to fetch rescue. 
we should also keep in mind these people aren't fighting fit. It's easy to imagine folk walking around having a discussion, chewing on a bit of wombat, but they're in trouble and they're already in trouble physically. That's right. They arrived in poor condition because they were exhausted with the effort of keeping their ship afloat. They landed in a storm. They probably got a bit bumped about in that process. They've been scratching for a living, so they won't have been in great nick. Let's not forget this poor old captain of theirs is 70 years old as well. Mm. His first mate is getting on in the terms of the day as well. He's in his late 30s, I think it is. They're not a well group, really, at this point. Having salvaged most of the cargo, they decided to celebrate by broaching one of the casks. Things got apparently out of hand and caused divisions amongst the group. And this, I also think, might be one of the reasons that the captain decided they should be divided up. I expect he probably sent the troublemakers away as well. It's very similar to Shackleton's decision when he decided that he would send the one man in his group who he reckoned was going to be the most dangerous to morale he chose to take him away from the group who were going to have the hardest time surviving, for whom morale was going to be the most precious thing they had. So he chose to take the carpenter, Harry McNeish, with him. Apparently it was the carpenter who was cutting up rough hair as well. He was amongst the group who was chosen to go with the longboat when she was eventually sent away. The longboat, she's around 22 and 25 feet long. She's an open wooden vessel, although they apparently decked her over to make her more seaworthy. She can be propelled with either oars or sail, and they have both. They have the luxury of having access to their wreck, of course, and they can salvage that kind of stuff. So she's reasonably well equipped. They've got food aboard, not a super abundance, but they calculate that if she sails at a normal speed and with roughly favourable winds, she should be able to cover the 700-odd kilometres from the Ferno Islands to Port Jackson, the site of present-day Sydney. She should be able to cover that distance in between a week and a fortnight. So they provision her for the outside of that a fortnight, and that's how she goes away. And she takes with her a crew of five Europeans, amongst whom was their leader, the first mate, and 12 of the Lascar seamen. Is the captain aboard? No, the captain has chosen to stay, presumably because he is the best qualified person to maintain morale and discipline amongst the group of survivors on Preservation Island, and also he's old. This is going to be a dangerous voyage, and in the event that they lose the longboat, they're going to have to hoof it, they're going to have to walk, and he's certainly not up to that kind of nonsense. So he elects to stay behind. The idea is send the fittest and strongest, those with the best chance of getting rescue, and also probably send the troublemakers as well. A word on the castaway camp. I'm assuming they could make a fire? They had flints and various other means of making fires, so they had no difficulty making fires, nor of sending the longboat away with the equipment necessary to make fires as well. So yeah, they had the means to make themselves, if not comfortable, then life at least tolerable. It's always worth imagining what it must be like to see that boat go off, your hope of survival as it leaves the horizon. Absolutely. It would be a... A pretty gut-wrenching moment for both lots, really. I guess those going away in the boat at least think we've taken destiny in our hands and Mm. we can do something to save ourselves. For those who are being left behind, so much depends on the safety of that little vessel and the competence and even the fidelity of the people aboard. You'd be saying a few prayers not only for them but also that they should be kept very much on mission, I suppose.
I'm assuming this island, Preservation Island, is not inhabited. No. These islands were uninhabited and they showed no signs of ever having been inhabited while these castaways were there. Okay. Let's tell the story of the people aboard the longboat. This is pretty grim. This isn't epic, really. It's quite amazing. They left on the 27th of February. Their mission, of course, was to get to Port Jackson. Pretty much immediately they left, a great big storm blew up, as it does in that part of the world. They struggled into it and before it and around it as best they could for a while. But then Australia loomed up in front of them and they were on a lee shore, which means you've got the weather coming from one side and a nasty coastline on the other, and the weather is trying to drive you onto it. So on the 15th of March, a couple of weeks after they left, they were wrecked. The little longboat was driven up on a beach. It's named 90 Mile Beach, and unlike our own 90 Mile Beach, it's actually a little over 90 miles long. And that's on Gippsland in Victoria. It's about 260 kilometres from Melbourne. They didn't know it, but it's a breeding ground for the great white shark. And it's a pretty barren kind of place. It's a long, long, long shingle and sand beach. And it's backed by lakes and lagoons of variously salt, brackish and fresh water. There are lots of snakes and there's not a lot to eat along there as well. Not a great shore to have been washed up on. And their longboat is not recoverable. It's wrecked. No, it was smashed to matchwood. Uh, mm. So any prospect they had of getting anywhere by sea was gone. And in fact, a lot of their provisions were lost as well. They managed to salvage a few casks of water, which was crucial. And they salvaged enough food to keep them going for the first few days. But after that, they became foragers. This is the tale of the Sydney Cove. But it's more than that. There are subset shipwrecks, as you've just heard. And, and now the real trouble does start for those 17 who set off to try and save the original castaways of Preservation Island on Tasmania. We'll be back and tell their grim story when we return the Sydney Cove this week. You're tuned in to Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. The shipwreck tale this week is the Sydney Cove. 1797. She's wrecked on an island off Tasmania and they were stuck on Preservation Island. A group of 17 took the longboat from the ship in bid to rescue those that remained. They themselves are now wrecked in a pretty forbidding area of Australia and nowhere near a town or city. This is 1797. How many are ashore on this area of Gippsland wrecked there and stuck? Yeah, remarkably, 17 of them got ashore. 17 of them set out, so they all got ashore alive. Once again, there's five Europeans and there are 12 of the Lascars, who are mostly Indians. They're 260 kilometres from Melbourne, but of course Melbourne lies very much in the future. More relevantly, they're 600 kilometres as the crow flies, or as the kookaburra flies, from Port Jackson, which is their destination. They've no choice. They have to walk, and so that's what they begin to do. They'd been going for a month or so, and they're surviving on shellfish mostly, the odd seabird when they can knock one on the head, and fish in the rivers that they're frequently obliged to cross as well. It's not easy walking because for all the ground that you can cover on a beach like 90 Mile Beach, you also have to cross some of those massive sandstone bluffs that the east coast of Australia has in spades. There are major rivers to cross, and of course they have no means of doing it, They have to improvise rafts each time to do it. It's just hard yakka everywhere you look. 
they're an inhabited country now. They see frequent signs of cooking fires, and by the middle of April, they've actually had three encounters with the Aboriginals. They're probably lucky in that one of the people amongst their party, a 20-year-old by the name of Will Clark, whose position aboard the Sydney Cove had been supercargo. He was the merchant's representative. He was Campbell Clark and Company's representative who was sort of responsible for seeing that the cargo was safely delivered and fetched a fair price. He proves to be invaluable in this because he seems to know how commerce works. He can get right down to that most basic human instinct of wanting stuff and he can use it to his advantage. He directs trading operations with the Aboriginals they meet and they actually have some pretty cordial encounters where they're able to swap some cloth and nails which they've salvaged from the longboat by burning her and extracting the metal. Anything that is just unusual to the Aboriginals they manage to trade, occasionally for food, but more often just for safe passage. The danger from the human element is mostly circumvented, although the initial response from every Aboriginal band that they meet is hostility, as you'd expect. Who are these people? They're Mm. aliens, really. It's the Independence Day. And you're tired and you're hungry and you have a perilous journey. You really don't know exactly how far it is to rescue. You know it's hundreds of kilometres. And the extra thing of running into angry people is it can ruin your day. It wouldn't improve your mood, that's for sure. And nor would the quicksand, of course. On at least one occasion, they nearly lost one of their mates to quicksand. Just approaching the banks of a river, he suddenly disappeared up to his armpits in this muck and they were hard-pressed rescuing him. So that must have set pulses a-fluttering somewhat. And now people start dying on the journey. Inevitably, some are coping better than others, and on several occasions people start lagging behind, and the decision is made that they can't afford to nursemaid anyone. So by around the 16th of April, they've already begun leaving stragglers behind every now and then. But by the 16th of April, when they're roughly halfway to Port Jackson, They decide that the nine weakest in their party are going to have to be left. This was greeted with absolute uproar by the Lascars, the Indians, who were informed that they were amongst this party who were going to be left behind because, as far as they could tell, they were being left to die. And not only to die, but to be killed and eaten, they presumed, by the locals. That decision wasn't taken too well. And, in fact, there seems to be evidence that the second group followed the group who were attempting to leave them behind for at least some of their way. That's a pathetic sight, isn't it? It is. They've left nine behind and eight are going on. Hunger begins to become a factor now. Just when things are looking grim enough, they're subject to a pretty concerted attack by an Aboriginal group. Not that far, actually, south of South Sydney. I suppose most visitors, when they run into trouble, do so in South Sydney, and this is uh, no, no exception. Most of them come away from this skirmish with the Aboriginals injured on the 26th of April. So they've been walking for a long, long time by now. Let's not forget that they were wrecked on the 15th of March. So that's well over a month, six weeks of hard slog, and now they're being brutalised by the locals as well. Do some succumb to hunger? Yes, we begin losing some. Whether it's hunger or a fall, at least one of them, while foraging on the rocks, fell off and died. And another of the younger members of the party died as well. Amazingly, when they reached Lake Illawarra, they happened across a group of Irish convicts who were going the other way. (laughs) They were runaways from Port Jackson and they were heading in the opposite direction. It was a fairly fleeting contact, apparently. Neither group could convince the other that there was wisdom in going in the direction they were going, so they parted ways. 
what an amazing thing to run into company. Yes, absolutely. It would be a surreal encounter, it really would. And then to be heading in the opposite direction. (laughs) As a convict, you'd be looking at these guys coming out of the promised land, looking half dead and wondering whether there was much wisdom in what you were doing. And then to the others, looking at the convicts heading determinedly in the opposite direction to the place you're heading to to rescue yourself, that must have given them pause for thought as well. It must be tempting to stop and rest because in that condition, the last thing you feel like doing is another 20 kilometres. It beggars belief, really. But they keep going. They do. The first mate eventually realises that he's going under through the injuries he suffered in his skirmish. He also had a bad river crossing where they were using Aboriginal canoes, which they found, and his sank, and he was pulled out half drowned. In fact, he was revived. He never quite recovered from that, and having a few spear wounds didn't help him as well. He decided that he wasn't going to make it, and the carpenter joined him. And so those two elected to stay on the coast to be rescued if the others made it and could send a ship back for them. They weren't seen alive again, although their remains were discovered. So only three of the original party of 17 actually made it, not quite to Port Jackson, but to a beach just south where a fishing boat spotted them and they were taken aboard and they made it to Port Jackson on the 17th of May in 1797. They discovered coal on the way, funnily enough, and that caused almost as much excitement as their story did when they managed to haul into Port Jackson. So three have made this journey of 640 kilometres. Of the 15 that didn't make this journey, do we know what happened to them? Were there, you said two of the bodies were discovered. What are the others? I don't believe any trace of them was ever found. It's... <laughs> Pretty remote area. There, yes, and there were so many different ways to die, really. There's the, that great ad campaign that ran recently, Dumb Ways to Die. There were lots of dreadful ways to die along that coastline at that stage. They'd made it to Port Jackson. What a feat. But there are many other people on Preservation Island just north of Tasmania. So we'll find out what happens next. And there are twists in the tale, folks. This is the Sydney Cove Shipwreck. Ah, weekend Variety. Wireless. Shipwreck Tales this week, the Sydney Cove, 1797. She was wrecked on Tasmania. Some stayed in a castaway hut there and sent 17 off in a longboat, which was wrecked, giving those 17 a journey of 640 kilometres to civilization. Only three made it. And what a sight they must have been when they made it to Port Jackson and were picked up, John. They must have been skeletons by that stage, but what a feat. Still job half done. Mm. They were there to fetch rescue for their mates back down on Preservation Island. So that's what they did. Governor Hunter supplied them with two vessels. There was the schooner Francis, actually quite small vessel, and then the even smaller Eliza, which wasn't actually that much bigger than the longboat these guys had set off from, except she had the advantage that she was decked over and designed for open water passage. Those two vessels were dispatched They reached Preservation Island on the 8th of June and they could see a fire burning there, a large fire, the kind of fire that you'd light if you were trying to attract attention of someone you'd seen sailing past, but the weather prevented them from actually landing and it was two days before they managed that. When they finally got ashore, they found a substantial number of people still alive, uh, although many of them had keeled over from a combination of hunger and illness. There were two Europeans and the rest were Lascars. Amongst the Europeans was Guy Hamilton, who by now, I guess, was aged 71. 
and he'd clearly done a remarkable job of keeping these people alive and some glimmer of hope that they might get out of all this. What a sight that must have been for them when these two vessels hove in view and they realised that they were in fact going to be rescued. But not all of them made it through that time on the island. Some of them dying of hunger, were they driven to cannibalism at all? No, they've managed to exploit the local resources very effectively. They still had the jolly boat, so they were able to get about the neighbouring islands. And in fact, they did a reasonably good job of charting some of that area as well. So they kept themselves pretty busy, both through necessity and also you presume that because if you're busy, you're not brooding on your predicament quite so much. So from here, this is rescue? Yep, they're rescued. They can't all be rescued at once, I'm sorry to have to say. There's not room aboard these two small vessels to take everyone off. So the first contingent is dispatched on the 20th of June, bound for Sydney. So precisely six people were left behind, saying, well, you've done really well surviving all this. Just a couple weeks more and we'll be back to get you. And finally, you will be rescued. Good heavens. They couldn't fit them aboard. They couldn't fit them aboard. It's a bit cruel, really. Mm. However, they might have, on reflection, been quite pleased about this because the Francis and the Eliza uh, disappeared into the distance bound for Port Jackson and a couple of weeks later, only the Francis arrived in Port Jackson. The Eliza was never seen again and aboard her were eight of the Sydney Cove survivors. So those poor buggers had survived all this time, had gone through all that needless joy at being rescued, only to drown after all. In the wreck of the ship that rescued them. Isn't that cruel? Bitterly cruel. From here then, one ship's made it back with some of the survivors. That's right. The Francis arrives back in Port Jackson, offloads the survivors she has aboard, and then turns around and heads back to Preservation Island. Guy Hamilton himself, the master of the Sydney Cove, is aboard, and he personally supervises the rescue of the five remaining people on Preservation Island. One of them has since died. So that's the end of the castaway camp there, and everyone is finally off. They successfully make it to Port Jackson many months after they had originally intended to, and, yeah, with quite a few stories to tell. The wreck has gone on to be a focus of attention over many years. I mean, today it's archaeologically interesting and historically. There's a plaque, actually, commemorating where they encamped and also describing the incredible journey it's there they started from. That's up on our webpage. It's the Sydney Cove picture for this shipwreck tale. That's what you're looking at if you're listening to this on the internet. Uh, and you have the picture there. It uh, briefly describes the story. But it's gone on to be a focus of interest, hasn't it? The wreck. And quite soon after the, the wrecking of the Sydney Cove in 1797... Yeah, well, being a small place and not that many people who weren't in prison actually living there, word got around pretty quickly that there was a ship beached down at Preservation Island with a cargo of rum. What's not to like about that picture, really? And a whole bunch of people, including George Bass, headed south to see what they could do about salvaging both the vessel and the rum. Bass, of course, is famous for giving his name to the strait between Tasmania and Australia, I personally feel that Guy Hamilton deserves the credit Mm. for reporting that such were the currents and the way the sea was behaving 
just to the north of the Furneaux Islands, that it was pretty likely there was a strait and not a bay there. So he was the first one to actually give that report, and Bass confirmed it. On his way down there, Bass discovered a crew of escaped convicts, not the people we were talking about before encountered, but yet another one. There were quite a few knocking around in those days, that part of Australia, who were also heading for Preservation Island, thinking that they could fix up this old boat, load the rum up, and then sail off into the Pacific and live happily ever after. Both lots were disappointed. Bass couldn't do anything with the Sydney Cove, and nor could the convicts. So there she remained. Eventually a storm smashed her to bits, but she was pretty quickly covered up with sand and very, very well preserved, as it turned out. And then in the late 20th century, she was rediscovered, and she's been a bit of a treasure trove, really, for archaeologists. And also there's been quite a lot of archaeological effort directed toward excavating the castaway camp as well. And most of the artefacts from both sites, the wreck and the castaway camp, are on display in a museum in Launceston. Do we know what happened to the Irish prisoners trying to escape that encountered the castaways on their journey north? I have no idea. They were in the territory in which the Sydney Cove fugitives were attacked, so they were in hostile territory. They were a small group. I think there were only four of them. And, yeah, they were desperate. They were also going nowhere. They were going nowhere. It's a journey to nowhere. If hunger didn't get them, then I'm sure the hostile Aboriginals would have. Either way, I'm sure they died free, but freedom is just another word for nothing left to lose. There is a legend that those Irishmen uh, founded Melbourne, which wasn't discovered by people in Sydney until 1956. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Thanks for Fantastic way to finish. <laughs> but someone, a yeah, New South Welshman, went over the Gippsland Hills and went, shit, there's a city there. <laughs> okay. What an incredible tale. Yeah. With twists and turns right to the very end. It just feels so terrible for those people who went through the sinking of one ship, the wrecking of it, being a castaway, being rescued just to perish in the shipwreck of the ship that was rescuing you. Yeah, it'd be a great film, if an awful one to sit through, really. Yeah, yeah. it would. John McChrystal, thank you very, very much. Thanks, Graham. you're enjoying the reinstalment of several of the shipwreck tales which uh, seem to have been missed from the shipwreck tales archive on the weekend variety wireless webpage i think there's more than 100 uh, 70 100 of them uh there will be more and more the ones that have previously been lost we're playing of saturday night while grant smithies is patiently sitting at home cooling his heels tapping his feet saying when am I going to be back on? You'll be back on soon, Grant. In fact, Grant will be back on tomorrow night. We're looking at the evolution of a band from its genesis to where it is today. They began as the Gordons in Christchurch in unusual circumstances. Well, I just finished art school in Christchurch 
I was about to embark on a career doing graphic design when I was doing posters for Jim Wilson and uh, he booked me in to do a show at the Hillsborough assuming that I had a band, which I didn't. So I had three days basically to get a band together and I hadn't met Alistair or Brent yet but <laughs> they were the first guys that came along and it just worked so we didn't really interview anyone else. Wow. And uh, three days later we were on stage supporting the Whiz Kids at the Hillsborough. After how many days' practice? Three days. Three days. Yeah, in which we wrote the songs. And Did you know them before that? I'd never met them before that, no. All right, that's John Halverson, founding member of the Gordons. They are now bailed to space touring New Zealand. It's a very, very rare thing. It's a ferocious sound from the get-go. Uh, beautiful as well, I think, more ferocious in the beginnings. You may want a hard hat when you listen to it. It may not be everybody's cup of tea, but it was the inaugural album, uh, classic album of all time for Independent Music New Zealand, rather a large and important organisation. They recognised it, plenty of people do, but if it's not your cup of tea, the smallest of apologies. God, they were loud. Here's Smithies. I was looking at one of their clips a day or two ago online and um, this dude said his elder brother always had the opinion that they were a great band to hear at the Carlton when they were playing at the Gladstone. Which is a nice joke if you've ever spent much time in Christchurch because the old Gladstone car park is like 700 metres from the old Carlton car park. They're both mm. now flattened. Basically, as Bro was referring to how punishingly loud they were and sometimes the best way to hear them was to be outside and down the road. <laughs> the Gordons to bail to space, starting in 1980, playing now still, and they're still fresh, good as ever touring New Zealand. Go check them out for the dates if you want. They're playing Wellington, Christchurch and Dunedin at the Cook on Saturday the 15th and the Others Way Festival is the first gig 31st of August. That is this coming Friday. Alright, uh, if you like the Shipwreck Tales, I'm sure you'll like the Outsider Tales. That's with Jared Hindmarsh. That's on tomorrow night after 11 o'clock. He's talking about some interesting whale versus ship scenarios. But he also has a question for you, the audience. I will let him explain. These are sort of some of the tales that have come out from whale encounters. But, Graham, there's one I'm going to have to solicit a reply from the audience if there is. Anyone know anything about this? I've heard from three different sources this tale about a sperm whale that was beached in New Zealand, which was often a great occasion, actually, because people could uh, boil down the whale for oil or whatever. Sometimes settlers would knock off and come down to the water to help themselves to the whale meat or whatever. Yeah, well, it would be a great bonus because a lot of energy and endeavour and bravery is spent getting these things. If one washes up, oh, thank goodness. Yeah, that's right, and they were sources of jubilation, uh, certainly at Puponga and Golden Bay, where these strandings have happened since time immemorial, really. You know, the early settlers would all stop work and rush out with their axes and knives and everything and just help themselves. But anyway, now I've heard this is in three, three different locations, which makes it possibly, you know, slightly improbable, I don't know, but... This huge sperm whale was on the beach, the tide had gone out, and this farmer was determined to get this whale up onto his paddock. Now, whereabouts uh, uh, in general is this happening? 
three different locations one otago one new plymouth and one on the west coast so oh heavens okay so this isn't a cluster <laughs> no it's not a cluster it's the same tale but ah. the location has changed now now it's sort of a, got a sort of slight reputability to it as well because some of the detail is quite interesting anyway the farmer the, the crux of the story is the farmer with a large crowd gathering gets 14 of his oxen down and he gets all yoked up and the bridles and everything and he ties the oxen up to the tail and he gets them, he gets his whip out and he starts whipping them, pull the whale up and as the whale's being pulled it comes alive and flaps around with the incoming tide and pulls the oxen out to sea, never to be seen again. Oh really? exactly is this true or not have now if i've heard it from three different sources i'd like to know is there anyone out there who can substantiate this tale because i don't think i believe it it's not beyond the realms of possibility these animals are tethered to the tail you'd and if they were being um flung about it would be a very brave person indeed to try and free them Oh, that's right. And a whale could uh, move quite quickly too when they get going. You know, the flailing whale is quite something. But, uh, you know, it was just a story that's always... In fact, it was the inspiration for me to find out a bit more about these whale stories that I'm talking about. I thought I'd leave it till last, Graham, to just, you know, is it true? Has anyone heard this before? Well, there, we've asked. If you want to get in touch, uh, you can do it on the Weekend Variety Wireless Facebook page. I'll forward it on to Jared. Jared, is there any preferred way you would like to do that? Oh, no. Anyone can contact me through uh, through you. That's fabulous. Okay. Email forms on the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage as well. Probably the easiest way. Or, if you prefer, don't hold back from writing something down and putting it in the mail. It gets here eventually. <laughs> Box 8880, Simon Street, S-Y-M-O-N-D-S, Simon Street, Auckland, and it will arrive in the inbox here. So take your pick, and if you know anything about these, maybe even if you've just heard the same tale, it might, I don't know, give us an idea of how widespread it is, even if it uh, doesn't help us with its veracity. But it would be interesting to find out. That's a fascinating story. Yeah, it is. It uh, quite tickled me, actually. All right. Does anyone know anything about that? Uh, go to the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage. It's clearly labelled there uh, how to email. You can post something on the Facebook page if you like. And P.O. Box 8880, Simon Street, Auckland. If you know anything about that, those are the preferred methods. I'll pass them on to Jared Heinmarsh. His tale tomorrow. Three scenarios of whale encounters that... Uh, very, very nearly ended up tragedies, perhaps that we'd never, ever know about. But of course, there were survivors, and that's why the story can be told, which is often something that John McChrystal reminds us of, all those untold tales. Uh, we have no idea of what happened. All right, uh, special hello if you're listening on the podcast. Thanks very much. Next show tomorrow night between 8 and midnight. Enjoy your evening. Overnight talk 0800 844 747. I'll see you tomorrow.